Hello there, I'm Dee Reddy and welcome to Inside Intercom. On this week's show, we catch up with Val Geisler as she walks us through some practical emailing tips, her process for onboarding and why she likens career progression to a spiral staircase. Val has an incredible range of experience, having begun her career as a stage manager for opera before progressing to virtual assistant and ultimately becoming an onboarding guru and email conversion strategist. She's also well known as an inspirational and informative speaker and writer. She can currently be found at the helm of her consultancy firm, Fix My Churn. We were lucky to have Val break down her onboarding and email strategies for us in a practically applicable format. So it's a must listen for anyone looking to gain some insights in this area. If you enjoy our chat with Val, make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes by subscribing to Inside Intercom now on the podcast platform of your choice. And now it's over to the studio. Val, we're delighted to have you as a guest here on Inside Intercom today. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? You have a very, very interesting personal background. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm delighted to be here as well. I'm a huge fan of Intercom and the the work that you guys do. So thanks for having me. You know, I stole this phrase from my friend Natalie Lussier. She said once to me that her career was like a spiral staircase, less like a a ladder, right? Like a corporate Mm -hmm. ladder. It's more of a spiral staircase. And I would say mine is the same where you're kind of always heading in the same direction. And just the view looks a little bit different every couple of steps. Um, And I like that analogy because I started my professional career in theater production. That's what I went to school for. Um, And I was a stage manager, which is the person who's behind the scenes, making sure that everything happens the way it's supposed to happen. And if you think about, you know, being an email marketer, I'm still the person who makes sure that everything happens the way it's supposed to happen, just in a different industry now. So there must be a lot of skills then, obviously, that you've taken from that part of your life. So I learned a lot about the entrepreneurial side of what I do now when I worked in theater, because I was kind of always working on my next gig well, you know, working on the current gig, looking for the next one, learning to interact with people really quickly. And, you know, I didn't work in one place for any long period of time. And I think that that has set me up for good success as a, a freelancer, as a contractor, because I have that skill set from my theater days. Having that entrepreneurial mindset has always been there, I think. I know I I grew up with a dad who was a salesman and he traveled a lot for work, which also meant that when he was home in the office, he his company, they all worked out of their home offices. And so I saw, you know, I saw him working a lot. I think one of my first like jobs that he paid me what a quarter to do was file his paperwork in alphabetical order, you know, put all his file folders in his, you know, when I was like six or something working on the alphabet and he would give me that task. So I grew up around kind of that model for me of working from home, um, even though he worked for a company, seeing it in my house and around me every day, I think influenced me in my business skills and the way I think about business and that. So as your career evolved, you've iterated a couple of times. So you started as a virtual assistant, right? And then you've kind of gone on from that to become one of the most foremost authorities on customer retention. So do you want to tell us a bit how you got from A to B? 
<laughs> the it's that spiral staircase again, mm. you know, and and using that entrepreneurial mindset as well. I was working for a special events company and uh, they were going through uh, some changes in staffing and I was actually fired from my role. And it was like a Wednesday afternoon and I was at my therapist's office and then I walked out of my therapist's office, got a phone call from my boss and said, oh, hello, I'm headed back to email you. And she was like, well, we need to talk. Uh, And I almost just turned around and walked right back into my therapist's office. So, of course, for that afternoon, I laid on the couch and cried and uh, wondered what I was going to do. And then the next morning, I woke up and said, well, you have to do something. And I had a bunch of friends who ran companies of different types. One did consulting, one had a T-shirt company, one had a imported goods company. She traveled the world. and And they all had told me over various conversations about, different things that they had to do for their business, but they didn't like doing. Uploading blog posts to WordPress, adding products to their Shopify store, contacting writers to gather blog posts for the next edition of their newsletter. So they had all expressed all these different problems. And I knew that they really wanted some help with them, that I could take it off of their plate. I I also had no clue how to do those things, but I knew that I could Google really well. So I went to them and I said, hey, you've mentioned this before. What do you think about paying me to do that for you? And I added up four or five clients to replace my salary. And so by the end of that week, I had replaced my salary in my position uh, where that I was full-time job. And I was working from home as what was a virtual assistant when I didn't even really know that was a job. Mm. I I just kind of created these opportunities, right? And then I went on Facebook groups and realized, oh, this is a, people do this, this is a virtual assistant. And so I, in my time as a virtual assistant, it looked like a lot of different things. Virtual assistants kind of naturally move into more like project management roles. If you have any kind of leadership skills, that seems pretty natural for them to grow that way. And I did that. And I mean, at that point, you already had such a strong background in project management from your stage managing. Yeah, exactly. It almost seemed like that was where I really was meant to be. And in, in that project management, I started to fall in love with the customer experience portion of it all and really dove into customer experience and what it means on both sides, both the customer side and the company side. I did some customer experience consulting towards the end of that particular iteration of the business. And then through that, I was asked to come work in-house in in the marketing team at this software company. And I say marketing team, but really it was, I was the first marketing hire. It was a, a small team where If you've ever been part of a very small startup, everybody does everything. Mm -hmm. And so I was working on the customer experience, but also on, you know, growing our blog readership and um, producing a podcast and all kinds of other projects as the company grew. And that was in ESP. And that's where I learned email inside and out. And so then I kind of just, when I went back out into freelancing, I merged all of those experiences of project management, customer experience, and email marketing, and have turned it into what is now 
my micro-agency called Fix My Churn, where we're really focused on helping monthly recurring revenue-based businesses, so SaaS and subscription e-commerce. We help them fix their churn-related problems through email marketing lifecycle campaigns. That's an incredible about churn and what could have been a pretty devastating personal and professional um, right. situation that's got to be at least three swirls on your spiral staircase. Um, oh yeah, it was a couple. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've built up such an incredible range of clients and you're probably one of the most credible voices in the area that you work. So I know a lot of people listening to the podcast today will be very, very keen to hear some kind of practical advice from you on a couple of topics. So we, we, we might touch on those now if you don't mind. I mean, the main area that I know people will be fascinated by is your approach to onboarding. Can you talk us through your process a little bit? Absolutely. So customer experience all starts with onboarding and actually reducing churn starts with onboarding because the more powerful your customer onboarding is, the less likely they are to churn, not just in that first month, but in long-term months to come. So if you, even if you don't have a long-term retention program, having a strong onboarding can do a huge bulk of the work for you. So I define, and I think we need to start with defining onboarding. I define onboarding as the period, either from the moment that they decide to start a trial till until they've converted into a paid account. Mm -hmm. Or if you don't have a free trial, maybe you have like the, you know, 30 day money back guarantee kind of thing, that first month where they could ask for their money back before converting to an officially paid account ongoing. So everything after that is customer retention. Mm -hmm. Once they're paying, once they're kind of locked in to being a customer, that's retention. So onboarding is really that early phase. So that's where it starts. And do you find that there's a need to kind of tailor this or make a differentiation between different sectors or businesses? Or is it something that there's a, you know, there's almost a formula that you apply? So it's a little bit of both, right? So I think it's good if you have nothing in place, then it's good to start with a bit of a formulaic approach and then iterate from there. And that's that's typically what I do. I use a, a technique, a, a framework called the dinner party strategy. And it's something that I've developed over the years where, you know, I, and I, again, I love analogies because I think that they work so well for us to connect mm. to something. And so the dinner party strategy is based around dinner parties. And I feel like most people have either been to a dinner party or hosted one. And you know what that experience is like. You go to someone's house and they aren't like shoving the dinner in your face the second you walk in the front door. You walk in, they, you know, get you settled in. Uh, maybe you've never been there before and they show you around a bit, get you a drink. There's some appetizers. Uh, everybody sits around the table. There's some conversation. And then we have the meal. And then it's not just like, okay, there's the meal. You're done. Bye. But we have the meal, we have some side dishes, we have, you know, we have uh, more conversation, we have a dessert afterwards, hopefully, because that's everyone's favorite part. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there's more conversation and maybe you are invited to come back for the next month's gathering. So using that kind of framework, you can really see how an onboarding sequence can be laid out to follow those steps. And so the dinner party strategy is six steps, uh, six emails 
And everybody always asks me about like how often they should go out. And that's the number one answer in email marketing is it depends. Mm -hmm. So it depends on how long your trial is, you know, all, a lot of different factors, but it's a really solid way to start. And then you layer in pieces like behavior-based emails and account-type-based emails, emails specific to your industry. So there are different parts and pieces based on the business type, but I think that the dinner party strategy gives you a really strong foundation to be able to build on. That's a really, really lovely analogy. And it's funny because my next question for you was actually going to be around saturation. And, you know, is there a kind of saturation point for customers in the onboarding process when they just kind of go, got enough, you know, I've, I've had yeah. three starters now and I'm perfectly full and I don't need a main course. So you please <laughs> leave me alone. Um, and how do you spot that moment for them or, or can you plan for it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so that's the behavior-based piece that comes into things, right? So you have kind of your standard drip campaign that's based on time, right? So mm-hmm. um, in relationship to when they signed up and when their their trial will end. And, and then you have the behavior-based pieces, which is, are they moving right along with everything you're asking them to do? Are they even moving ahead of what you're asking them to do? Or, or are they doing nothing? Are you continuing to ask them to do things and they haven't done the first thing? You know, mm-hmm. you're still offering them course after course after course, and they haven't touched their soup yet. And everyone has Um, different appetites as well, right? Yes. Yeah. And that's where behavior-based matters so much because you can really know a lot of that from segmenting your list and watching how they behave so that you're really speaking to their exact needs while continuing to talk about the other features, but not overwhelming them with so much information up front uh, when they came to you for a thing and you can guarantee them up front that we can accomplish that and then start to sprinkle in the other things that you offer. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode two of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our chief product officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience, It's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Is there one email that you think that every SaaS company should be sending? Well, a welcome email. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and by welcome email, I don't mean here's your account information, your okay. login and your uh, the, the link to your dashboard. Um, but I mean an actual welcome email where you as 
a individual, so this is is kind of a a multi-part answer, but that this welcome comes from a person, preferably the founder or CEO, not the company, right? And it's not signed the intercom team. It's signed by a person from intercom. And it's a welcome. The welcome can be telling a little bit of a story about how the company got started, what matters the most to you as a company, as a team, uh, as an individual person, and how, you know, building that relationship and that connection, because we as human beings build relationships by storytelling. Storytelling is in our blood. It's what cavemen did on the walls of their caves. Mm -hmm. And we have to remember that as marketers, that telling stories is the most important part of building a connection with other human beings. And the person on the other side of your emails is a human. And when you send that welcome email and do some storytelling in it, they start to feel a connection to you that goes beyond, this is a piece of software that is is or is not solving a problem for me. Now, all of a sudden, you start to stand out against your, quote, competition. When you look around and say, okay, well, we're a scheduling software and we're building a personal connection with a brand personality and uh, yeah, our customers know our, our team members by name because that's how we sign our emails versus another scheduling software that sends everything from the team. All they talk about is the product and uh, how the product is the best product in the whole world. The customer doesn't feel as much of a connection to that product as they do to the more personalized experience. And that's what we're all looking for as customers. So, you know, send the welcome email and send it in a a very personal way. So I was actually going to ask you as my next question, what would be your top three tips for getting a customer to read your email? But you've already Uh, given us two, I think, there, which would be to personalize it and to add a story. So would there be a third that we could share with our audience? Uh, yeah, um, email more often than you think you okay. should. Yeah, uh, not enough companies are emailing often enough. Um, so you have to make it personal. You have to make it about them. Uh, the number one tip I give when I do email audits is to flip the script, change it from features to benefits. What is it that that feature does for that customer and talk about it like that? Don't just say, you know, we built this new dashboard. Great. Nobody cares about a new dashboard. Why do they care about the new dashboard though? You said that you want to see this particular metric front and center every day. So we updated the dashboard to show you that at the very top. And here's a picture of it. You know, that's much more compelling to a customer than like, look at this dashboard we made for you. You know, make it about them. Absolutely. From subject line to from the from sender to the body of the email. Since you move on now, you've you've written a little bit about the need to specialize. And you had this lovely quote in an article that you wrote about kind of telling people not to be the cheesecake factory. Mm-hmm. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so this is I was talking to a group of copywriters mm-hmm. at the time and they this is a common problem in uh, freelancers and especially copywriters is that we all want to do everything. If you think back to when I started my VA business, um, I was kind of just doing whatever for anyone who would hire me to do it, you know, loading Shopify products, updating blog posts, project managing shirt projects, uh, whatever someone would pay me for. And it made it really hard for me to tell people what I did 
And it also made it hard for people to refer me to other business owners because my t-shirt company friend, how many other t-shirt companies does he know where I can, you know, do that same kind of project management, but how many other business owners does he know that if, if I would have been more specific about what kind of work I did, then he could have referred me to those other people. So the cheesecake factory is, you know, if, if anyone listening hasn't Mm. been there before, they have like a 24 page menu. (laughs) I'm not exaggerating either. It's a, it's a very long menu with basically everything under the sun. And then in the world of the cheesecake alone, there's like 50 flavors and they have to price themselves accordingly. Right. So a sandwich is $12 at cheesecake factory. Whereas if you go to a nice Italian restaurant and they have a one page menu, the front is the food, the back is the wine and, you know, they offer a dozen things and that's it. And also it's all only Italian food and, you know, they can, then they can do things like, well, we hand make all of our pasta because we're not you know, sourcing all these different food types. And we, and also a bowl of spaghetti is $24 instead of a $10, $12 sandwich, right? So as far as freelancers go, the more specific you can get about the services that you offer, the higher you can price your services because your value goes up. And you also get to only learn about one thing at which saves you a ton of time and it makes you an instant expert in an industry right if you as a copywriter if you only do sales pages and you know everything inside and out about the psychology of sales pages and what goes into them and what makes for a great sales page you know exactly how to market yourself. People know exactly how to refer people to you. And then your work becomes a premium because you are an absolute expert on everything sales pages. So before we let you go, Val, I just wanted to ask you something we ask a lot of people. Who's the business leader that you most aspire to and why? Hmm, that's a great question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, you know, the people I aspire to are people who are kind of more silent business leaders. They, so for example, the two most influential books on my, my work and my business in the last year that I've read are Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication, which is an amazing book. Um, it's designed as like a, you know, kind of relationship self-helpy book. That's the section you'd find it in, but it's really about communicating with people. And so learning a level of communication that Marshall has and what he tries to teach in his books and workshops is a is aspirational to me and because he manages to do it in such a way that is inviting and calming and and warm and also straightforward and you know assertive so he he really sets the bar for me as far as communication goes And then the other person, the other book that I read recently is Atomic Habits by James Clear. And Atomic Habits has been so influential in my work because in email, especially in onboarding, what we're doing is asking people to develop a new habit. And so learning the way habits work in human beings and understanding the depth of research that James has done on habits and habit formation is incredible. The way he has pulled together years and decades of research into one book and one methodology has just been really 
aspirational to look at from a, a leadership perspective. But those two people and books have changed the way that I run my business and think about communication and habit building and the way that we do email marketing. So they are they are definitely my aspirational people. They both sound like really, really useful recommendations for people. So we'll be sure to link to them from the blog. And then lastly, Val, before we absolutely let you go, and it's been such a pleasure talking to you today, where can people keep up with your work? Oh, sure. Well, first, I want to say that I actually have the dinner party strategy as a PDF download. Um, so if you want that, you can go to fixmychurn.com slash TDPS for the dinner party strategy and download it there, you get the option of joining my email list as well. <laughs> and so following all those laws, but you know, in there you get the, the breakdown of the dinner party strategy. And then I also go into more depth about open rates and subject lines and can spam and staying out of the spam folder and all those things. So that's all in there. And that's a great place to start. If you want to just in general, I write on email onboarding teardowns on my blog, and that's at fixmychurn.com. You can sign up for our main email list there if you don't want to get the dinner party strategy, and you'll get all new onboarding teardowns as they come out. And uh, they're also posted on the blog. So if you want dissections of existing onboarding campaigns and even some swipe copy to take and put on your own, you can find those there. That's super. And we'll be sure to link to all of those from our blog. Thanks a million for joining us today, Val. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is really fun. Thanks for listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more interviews, go to intercom.com slash blog or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud or Stitcher. This is Inside Intercom.